Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. Can you turn please to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you turn to your own Bible, otherwise it will appear uh, behind us. 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to read from verse 18. All right, this. But the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where are the scholars? Where are the philosophers of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. May the Lord help us to uh, understand the passage in these few minutes before we, we break bread together. One of the things said in the many eulogies um, to the Queen Mother this past fortnight was that she stood for and believed in the values of a, a bygone, a past age. She represented ideals of of public service and duty and loyalty and, and honour and chastity and traditional faith and so on. And her refusal to leave Britain during the war and her, her regal condescension to ordinary folk and her love of the Anglican prayer book and all that, it was all uh, noted many times in the articles and in the television programmes that followed her death and around her funeral. And all the papers were saying that we have moved a long way away from those things. That she represented that which has in Britain now, to a very great degree, uh, died away. Died away even in public life. Let alone down the pub or uh, on the housing estates or wherever people sort of mill about and get together. Gone because the spirit of the age can change. The things that um, are the priorities and the obsessions, even, of a following age 
can be so different from what has immediately gone before. I'm not saying that the past is always better. Far from it. But that it is possible to look at an age or a decade, as people have done, and give it some sort of characterization. People used to talk about um, the materialism of the 80s, or the rebellion, uh, you remember, of the 60s, or the complacency of the 50s. Fewer people can can remember. Or the, uh, the greed of the 90s. None of those things were particularly pleasant. But even the secular commentators were able to say, somehow those characteristics marked that age, when the majority of people perhaps in this country faced in, in one direction or were herded into striving uh, for similar things. Now the big problem for the church of Jesus Christ in any age is that uh, it comes to be undermined and corrupted by the prevailing spirit that is around. The spirit of the age so often seeps into or invades the church where it should not be. Where it can do an enormous amount of of damage. The church often doesn't understand it uh, and uh, so loses out in that battle. In, In the medieval times, Roman Catholic popes and bishops behaved and dressed like princes until the Reformation. In the 1960s, trendy vicars seemed to behave and dress like hippies until everyone was uh, laughing at them on on TV. The spirit of the age changes. It constantly corrupts the church. And the tricky challenge of leadership is always um, to resist the spirit of the age without identifying the church just with nostalgia. Now, in around 50 AD, Paul came into Corinth. Uh, It was the one place that he ever said really scared him. As he walked in alone, having begun the evangelization of Europe, having come from Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, all the way down through Greece, and been battered, beaten, rejected, chased out in place after place, he now came to Corinth. And you know, we said many times probably in this church, you know what Corinth was like. It was a huge port, far bigger than Athens at that time, sucking in people from all around the Mediterranean and from way beyond. A city full, therefore, of rootless people in many ways. People who might have been passing through only for a short time. And it had a reputation for freewheeling immorality. Everybody's heard of the Temple of Aphrodite, up on the hill, looking down over Corinth, And prostitutes, cult prostitutes, used to come down off that hill into the city at night to ply their trade. Fewer people have heard of the Temple of Apollo down in the city, the god of homosexuality. It was a city obsessed with three things. Making money, sex, and idolatry. And Paul, no wonder he was scared. Any one of us would have been scared. But he worked there... Um, at first alone, and then with some companions for about 18 months. You can read the story in Acts chapter 18. Until finally a church was born. And he then felt, after the 18 months, able to go back to Antioch, where he'd originally started out from the church that had prayed him out and sent him on his way, go back there for a bit of rest and uh, refreshment. Five years later, the spirit of Corinthian society had so invaded, it had crept back into that church, 
brought in very often by the new converts to the faith. So that Paul had to write letters, he had to send uh, companions, team members, he had uh, a number of painful visits himself in order to try and address the problems that had now grown up in Corinth. Because after five years, this church was a real mess. Started well on a solid foundation, but it had become a real mess. There were people at loggerheads with each other about this and that. There were people falling by the wayside into sexual temptation, which was easily come by in Corinth. There were wrong attitudes and behavior patterns within marriage that were spoiling the church. There were people exercising their freedom in their personal life, but in ways that hindered the growth of other people. There was a lot of talk about spiritual gifts, but very little of it seemingly under uh, submission to Christ. It was a real mess. This was a church that was a disunited, proud, talkative, and everybody seemed to be insisting that the problems, those kind of problems, were other people's fault. There was very little looking in the mirror and, and taking responsibility oneself for the things that were, were going wrong. Fundamentally, the problem in Corinth was the problem of, we may say, man-centeredness, or perhaps better now, self-centeredness. It is the commonest sickness among Christians in any age. It's the common cold, if you like, of the Christian faith. Me first. I want to be satisfied. And so there was this constant undercurrent in Corinth of me, my needs, my reputation, getting what I want. It needn't surprise us, it was present among the disciples, you remember, right back at the beginning when they were first called. It's present now here in Corinth, in 55 AD. It's present in Saltisford today. It's the common cold of Christianity, if you like. I, I want me to be appreciated and satisfied and, and so on. The spirit of the age, in one of its many guises, always creeping back in. Now, how does Paul deal with this mess? It's very instructive. Here is the apostle to the Gentiles. The one who is the vehicle, really, under God, of almost our entire understanding of what Christianity really is. Uh, it's the most vital lesson in, in church life or church leadership to see how Paul deals with this problem in Corinth. And what he does is he, he takes them, in this letter, all the way back to the gospel that originally he preached to them, and that originally saved them. Because, you see, the gospel contains within itself, if only we will come back to it often enough, all the ingredients, not only of our initial salvation, but for the preserving, the maintaining, the directing, the cleansing of life and ministry from then on. And we're going to think about that as we come back again uh, in a short while um, to the Lord's communion table. Let's just have a think of the, um, the structure of the passage that we've been dealing with. First of all, between verses uh, 18 and 25, Paul is talking about the foolish message that is at the heart of Christianity. The message of the cross. And yet it is the power of God, he says. 
and it's the power of God to continue saving us and cleansing us and, and dealing with us. And then secondly, from 26 to the end of the chapter, he'll go on to talk about the feeble converts. You remember I, I read, not many of you were wise, not many of you were that clever, were you? The feeble converts drawn into Christianity. And yet, they are the people of God. We won't have time to look this morning at the third little section of this, where he goes on at the beginning of chapter 2, to talk about um, the frightened evangelist who actually preached Christianity. Because he is the mouthpiece of, of God. We're looking at those first two sections together um, this morning. Let's switch that um, off then. Back to the cross, the foolish message. Now imagine this church in Corinth. It's made up probably, because they wouldn't have had buildings even as big as this, it would have been made up of lots of little um, house groups. People, although part of the wide church in Corinth, they would have actually met in smaller houses. It would have been very rare for them to find an opportunity to get as many as this, 200 people together in one building. They would have been, well, cells of the, uh, the modern world. And uh, in these different little groups, some folk were priding themselves on their cleverness, how much quicker they were on all the uptake than other people sitting further down the bench. Other people were priding themselves on their giftedness or their strategic thinking or all those kind of things. And Paul reminds them, look, he said, what saved you? Cleverness? Giftedness? Your great ability? No, 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 no. None of those things saved you. God has chosen deliberately to save people with a message that bypasses all those natural human abilities. With a message that looks foolish. Someone who was crucified. Someone who couldn't even carry his own cross to the place of execution. Someone who had announced his kingdom, inaugurated it one day, and the next day was dead. Fine kingdom, that. Look at a man who is bleeding, naked, despised, betrayed, forsaken, nailed up to die. And there, when you understand what's going on there, the power of God begins to be uh, released into your life. Can I remind you, he says, you dear, opinionated Corinthians, that you weren't saved by any of this stuff that's now dividing you and that you're fighting about and you're jealous over. You were saved entirely by the Lord Jesus Christ in weakness. And this is Paul explaining it, who would have been cleverer than any of them. And yet he says that my own cleverness only led me into division, into hardness, into anger, into bitterness, into wanting to persecute people and do them down. Paul, in this first section, quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, uh, verse 14. It, it was a situation where the Assyrians, who were, you know, the, the, the big uh, tough folks of that time, they were growing their empire, they were threatening Israel, Many in Israel were frightened, and Isaiah brought the people of Israel this message from God. God is going to save you. He is going to rescue you. Have you have no doubt about that at all. But he's going to do it in a way that owes nothing to the cleverness of the advisors of the king or the cabinet or any of this. He's going to save you in a way that would astonish you and that you could not have predicted. 
And if you read 2 Kings chapter 19, you see what happened. Well, it was astonishing. One night, 185,000 people in King Sennacherib's army were killed in the one night. Mysteriously, I don't know how, how it happened. God said, there you are. I know how to save you. And I will do it in a way that astonishes you. So we got it. He says to the Corinthians, do you see the implications of all this? From the very day that you were converted, God chooses to save people with an apparently foolish message about the sacrifice of his son so that everybody, every single one of us, must come in the same way, trusting the same Lord, not bringing our high horse with us, just coming as we are, because it is the power of God that saves people, not human ability. This, says Paul, think about it, is the wisdom of God as well as the power of God. Think how wise God has been, he says there in verse 25, because he cuts out all boasting. You can't come into the kingdom of God and bring you with, with you a lot of pride about your own ability. All this pretending to be better than other people. It goes right, this gospel goes right to the heart of this self-centeredness which creeps in with the spirit of the age. This message is designed in heaven to make us grateful and humble and generous, not demanding and self-orientating. Do you see how Paul is taking the gospel that he originally preached and applying it like a medicine to that which had grown up amongst these quarreling Corinthians so that they will think again of themselves in relation to God and begin, as a result, to treat their fellow believers differently. Verses 26 to 31, he goes on to say, Now look, remember what you were like, you folks. Remember what you were like before you were actually brought into the church of Jesus Christ. Nobility? Wealthy? Well, we might as well look around this morning. We look. How many of you were from aristocratic families? How many of you start life with a great silver spoon sticking out of your gob? How many of you are from those kind of uh, backgrounds? Or how many, not very many high-flying academics or, or the powerful in society. They're pretty notable by their absence, says Paul. Because he knew, he, he led most of them in the early days to Christ. God seems to have gone out of his way to choose non-entities, says Paul. It's a bit rude, almost. And that's why people who've lost their jobs, and people who suffer from depression, and people who, who don't pass all their exams, and people who are ashamed of stuff that they've done in life, and things that have happened to them. The message is, come in, come in. This gospel, this message, this church built on this message, is for you. And down through history, Christianity has always spread most rapidly amongst the poor and the struggling in society. It has always been the case. Jesus, right at the beginning, when he stood up on day one in the synagogue in Nazareth and took the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bring sight to the blind to declare freedom and release for people who find themselves trapped and captives and so on. God delights to pick up the scum from the Corinthian gutter and lovingly and patiently make them into a people who will reflect his grace and his, 
his nature. Why? So that no one would boast this fault. Verse 29. So why are you boasting? All this self-centeredness, says Paul, that has crept into the church in Corinth, it is thoroughly objectionable to God. God has designed things from the beginning in such a way that your relationships ought to be lived out in the light of the gospel. The cross, we must stop, the cross always stands against the spirit of the age, of any age. And the great danger, and it's a danger for every age and in every culture and wherever you go in the world, the great danger is that we human beings will subtly develop a kind of crossless Christianity. Crossless marriages. Crossless witness. Crossless service. That's what Paul's afraid of, is, is growing up here. Which is why he calls them back to the table, to communion. To consider the gospel again, to consider their own utter need for the grace of God. Because crossless Christianity doesn't deal with sin. It, it doesn't humble the proud and the self-centered. It, it doesn't lift up the poor and the hurting. It doesn't destroy any of the works of the devil. It doesn't make us courageously salty in society. It doesn't release grace into our relationships. And so Paul had just said in the verse immediately before where we started reading, verse 17, uh, he said, I, I came not, not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of human cleverness and wisdom, but because I didn't want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. And so we come to the communion table. And Paul later on um, in this same letter to the Corinthians will explain again how as they come to the table they are to consider themselves, they are to judge sin when they see it. Uh, they are to put themselves right back at the beginning as it were and re-express gratitude and loyalty for the grace of God. The Lord said to all of us through Paul and, and uh, the apostles come back here often. Don't neglect the necessary reminder of the symbolism. Because in what we're about to do, the cross is at the centre. It reminds us again, as you will watch bread broken in front of you, as you will watch, I was going to say wine, but it's actually grape juice, but the symbolism is exactly the same, poured out in, in front of you. It will remind us of God's foolish, weak message that provokes our repentance. And, and releases grace into our lives. The message of the cross is this. That I am a sinner. I don't deserve God's grace. I'm worse than I understand. Truly. But by his mercy and grace, he can forgive and renew and remake me into something I could never have been. Only by his spirit. Only by his word teaching me the truth. But Paul also had to say that the message of the cross is foolishness to people who are perishing. And there may be some here with us today, and you're very welcome. But as you sit hearing something of the story of the cross, 
as you hear these songs and these readings. Do you see nothing? Doesn't make any sense, really. Feel nothing. There's no response rising up within you. Can I say that those things, that, that kind of way of responding is the worst possible danger sign concerning your spiritual situation now and likely future. If there's no inner response, you must ask God to open up your eyes to this message. Because Paul said that if there's no response, there's no gratitude, there's no rising up, it is a sign that you are in fact perishing. The cross divides people. There are those who will say, Lord, thank you. That's exactly what I need. I am a sinner. Please come. May the blood of Christ shed on that cross cover over for all eternity all my sin. That's where I want to stand. And there are others who say, well, it happened. It doesn't seem to have anything much to do with me. I'm certainly not going to ask Christ to be my Lord, my Saviour, the one who, who leads and directs my life in the future. Say that. And you're on the other side. And Paul speaks of us, if we find ourselves in that situation, as perishing. But to those who have been humbled by the message, who began to be grateful, and who said, Lord, I want to learn to live across life. Jesus talked about it in terms of taking up the cross. I want to learn to do that. Then it is the power of God to save us for all eternity and to go on saving us from being misled or poisoned or made uh, dirty in any way by the spirit of the age in which we live. Tiresias are, are strong and important as Paul's um, preaching to these Christians. Now with that in mind, let's begin to come in our hearts um, to the table of the Lord. If you trust him, you love him, you're grateful, please feel most welcome, even if you're not one of our regulars, to take bread and wine with us today. It's the Lord's table, it's not ours. If you're not sure that you can eat that bread and drink from that cup, meaning the same thing as everyone else, then just let it go by. Pass it to someone else. There's no, there are issues to think about, but there's, there's no shame, there's only honesty in doing that. But first we're going to sing um, a great Welsh song. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Here it is, loving kindness, like a flood, where the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.